Turn on my nifty little microphone. We are returning to our study this morning in Ephesians. Ephesians, we have arrived to at Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, last week I did a uh, really an introduction to chapter 3 as we looked uh, quite a bit at the life of Paul. And I think what we'll find today is that we'll continue that look at the life of Paul. And we'll continue to look and see and understand better why Paul is who he is. I've titled the name or the sermon, I've titled it The Mystery Revealed. The Mystery Revealed. And I think that what we're going to find here in in Ephesians chapter 3 is that God has revealed through Paul the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church. Let me pray for us and then I'll read in Ephesians chapter 3. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you that we can be together, gathered here in your name. Father, we thank you for sending the Spirit to be among us, to live within us. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus that you sent him to die on a cross for our sins, that we might be redeemed by his shed blood. Father, as we preach today, as we hear this preaching, I pray that you would enliven our hearts through your spirit, and that we would be ready for the Lord's table in just a few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, if you'd read along with me. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the, to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which, is, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might, not now be made, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. They are your glory. There are many things which happen in culture which I don't feel the need as a pastor to mention or address. Really, the bar is quite high whether I'll mention a hot item in our culture. Sometimes I will use a story from, from our culture to point, make a point in a sermon, but I don't think that I have the, I don't think that I should, I don't think I need to mention everything that affects us. If I did, I would be more of a cultural commentator than a preacher of God's Word. I feel that my job as a pastor, as a preacher, is to preach the truth of the Word of God and help you apply it. I also, my job is also to pray for you. Pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate your hearts to understand and apply the truth. Here at Grace Bible Church, that's why we are committed to the exposition of the Scriptures. We choose to preach through the Bible verse by verse. We desire 
then to preach the entire or the whole counsel of God. We stand with J.I. Packer who has stated, if one preaches the Bible biblically, one cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. As such, we believe that when we preach the Bible, we preach the good news of the gospel. We also believe then that the Bible addresses the culture. Actually, we believe that the Bible addresses every culture. Having said that, sometimes we do need to address cultural items. We do need to address issues posed by our culture. Just this past week, there have been several items that as Christians we should be aware. Elizabeth Warren, a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, was in the news for a couple of different reasons. She called for tech companies such as Facebook and Twitter as well as other politicians, to slow the spread of misinformation. Beloved, this is something you might read in a, in a George Orwell novel. 1984, to be exact, if you've read it. There's an obvious problem with Warren's statement. First, we have the First Amendment to our Constitution, which protects our right to free speech. Now, Beloved, the, free, the First Amendment does not allow us to publish disinformation or outright slander right but the bar to prove slander is set very high to ensure our right to free speech now here's here's the kicker though there's one other major problem with her statement who defines what is true and what's false who who sets that definition the government maybe a website like snopes gets the nod and some of you probably understand why I would bring them up. As Christians, we believe the Word of God is the final arbiter of truth, but we know, as Christians, that we can't force people to believe the Bible. We can't force it. We can't foist it upon them. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that the First Amendment also guarantees us, the First Amendment of the Constitution also guarantees us the freedom to freely exercise religion. In other words, the First Amendment guarantees that we can gather here today without fear of arrest for speaking against the government. So we can be here today, and even if I speak against the government, I, could, I, don't, have to be, I don't have to fear being arrested. And I don't have to fear being arrested for preaching the gospel either because of our First Amendment rights. So what Elizabeth Warren is doing is an attack against our First Amendment rights. We should be aware of this. You know, the gospel has historically been considered subversive. You know why? Because it declares, the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus, declares that there is a king who is far greater and far more glorious than any earthly king. Ultimately, the gospel will be the target for restriction of free speech. That's the ultimate goal. Historically, we've seen restrictions like these throughout history, the history of the church. Even today, we see them in other countries, such as China. There's a, there, there's, they are right now, I mean, they, there's a pastor in jail for preaching the gospel in China. Look him up, Early Reign Covenant Church. Beloved, we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our country's leaders, but we need to pray that the church, for the church, because it looks as though we're going to be caught in an ever-tightening vice. Now, last Sunday, at the end of my sermon, I asked the question, do you see the truth of the gospel as something to die for? And during the sermon, we explored and studied the Apostle Paul and showed why he was willing to suffer and die for the Lord Jesus. And at the end of that sermon, I challenged you to imitate Paul and the rest of the apostles by taking up your cross and following Christ. Now, this may mean that we suffer and die for the cause of Christ. This reality may be even closer with some of the political dialogue that we're hearing. It's not a fatalist point of view, I can say that. Also last Sunday, at 12.06 p.m., about the time that I was challenging you, a helicopter took off from Orange County, John Wayne Airport in Southern California with nine souls. 
This state-of-the-art aircraft was carrying a man named Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna, along with two other teammates and their parents and another coach. They were flying to play basketball at Bryant's training facility, and it was a flight that I know that Kobe Bryant had taken hundreds of times to avoid traffic. Ironically, he had started flying helicopters to be able to spend more time with his family and be able to work on his craft as a basketball player. On Sunday morning, last Sunday morning, Southern California was socked in by fog, and the pilot was who, but the pilot was highly experienced in these types of situations. Now, we can't be certain exactly what happened, but we know the pilot was flying very low. Uh, some of us know this territory that he was in. He was flying very low to avoid the fog as he was flying through this mountainous area. And some believe that the pilot became disoriented by the fog and he lost his sense of up and down. And others believe there was something wrong with the helicopter. But we don't know. We may never know. But the ensuing crash was not survivable. All nine passengers, including Kobe Bryant, died instantly. At the time that Kobe Bryant crashed, he was worth around $770 million. He was arguably, arguably the most reckon, the, one of the more recognizable sports figures in the world. To some, to be sure, maybe some of you, he was just a man who put a basketball through a hoop. But to some... Maybe some of you, at least at some point in your life, he was a Messiah-like figure. You may be asking why I bring this up. Well, I do for a couple of reasons. Chances are you know some young man who has been profoundly influenced by Kobe Bryant. Some, some will question why God took him at such a young age. He was in the prime of his life. He was 41 years old. And he seemed from the outside to be a devoted father and husband. Let me remind you, the reason he was on that helicopter was because of his family. Despite, the, though, some well-documented struggles that he had in his family life. that He represented all that they wanted to be. He was their idea of perfection, or at least their idea of greatness. He was a man worth following. Think about that. He was a man worth following, is what people, some people would say. He had it all. Talent, looks, money, power, and influence. He could do, but he could do nothing, beloved. This is the point. He could do nothing to avoid that last moment. Nothing. None of those things. Power, influence, money, a helicopter. None of those things could save him. Now, you may, be, you may say that I'm being crass to say that. But I assure you that I'm not. Beloved, none of us here, I can, I, I'm fairly certain of this statement, none of us here are as rich and powerful as Kobe Bryant. Yet we all face death the same as him. We all face death the same as him. That's the reason, beloved, I'm a gospel preacher. I've been called to be a gospel preacher because God has called me, but I'm preaching the gospel because every one of us face death, and what I want you to have is hope. Richard Baxter says this, I preached as never sure to preach again, but as a dying man to dying men. End quote. Beloved, that's why we preach the gospel. See, every one of us here must answer two main questions in life. What do you believe about life after death, and what do you believe about life before death? You're questions or your answers to these questions will be related if you believe that this life is all that we get then you will live that way if you believe that there's nothing beyond death you will live that way if you believe that eternal life matters much more than this life then you'll live that way if you're here today and you don't know jesus christ as your lord and savior i beg you to consider what you believe about life and i beg you more than that to consider what you believe about life after death according to scripture according to the bible we are all appointed to die we are all appointed to die there is an expiration date on your life you don't know what it is but there is an expiration date 
A week or so ago, I bought some cheap public flowers for my wife. Those are actually a really good deal if your wife likes flowers, by the way, men. We noticed yesterday that one of the flower types had completely withered and died, but another one of the types in the vase was faring much better so, better, so Angie decided to pick the dead flowers out and to leave the good ones. As she did, the leaves began to fall from the quote-unquote good ones. Even though she was able, even so, she was able to save some of those, and they'll live or they'll be there for another day or two. But here's the point: at some point, those flowers are completely gone, and we get that because we know that everything dies. Even those flowers that last maybe a day or two or three longer, they all will go away. You see, we're so accustomed to death that we don't even think about it, at least in that way. But we're, uh, we're really in awe of things that live a long time, aren't we? I'm amazed that, I'm personally amazed that parrots can live beyond the age of 60. And turtles can live 80 years. And, and the oldest tree in Florida is 30, was 3,500 years old when it was burned down by a meth addict. Yes, I said that. That is, that is true. The point is, is that there is an expiration date set. None of us know the day or the hour. Even if you decide to die at your own hands, even if you murder yourself, you can have no guarantee to succeed. No guarantee. But there is one guarantee. The Bible also says all men are appointed to die, and then comes the judgment. That is the guarantee. You will stand before a holy God and you will be judged according to your deeds. According to Scripture, if your name is not found written in the book of life, then you will be thrown into the lake of fire. Today's church, beloved, shies away from preaching about hell. You know, fire and brimstone. We don't want to consider it. Quite frankly, I stand here to tell you I struggle with it as well. I struggle... I struggle in the sense that I don't want to believe in my flesh. I don't want to believe anybody faces eternal damnation. But I must believe, I must believe this to be true because Scripture teaches it. And frankly, frankly, I must believe it's true because we all actually understand that there must be a reckoning. Do you realize that? Logically, we understand there must be a reckoning. Let me prove it to you. When I bring up judgment and hell, you're probably thinking like an accountant. You know, like the old ledger accounts. You have your debits and you have your credits. Or maybe you have the balance sheet mentality. You have your assets and you have your liabilities. You know, this even shows up in children's Christmas songs. You know the words. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice, right? So we have, that, we have that sense of fairness, whether something's fair or not. Many of us have said, that's not fair. I may have done some, some wrong, but surely the good that I've done outweighs the bad, right? Surely the good things that I've done outweighs the bad things that I've done. You might even say, I'm not as bad as some. I've never murdered anyone. Have you ever heard somebody say that? When you're sharing the gospel with them, I mean, I'm good. I've never murdered anyone. You know, they may even say, I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Mao, right? I I haven't murdered thousands of people. But I wonder what Hitler, Stalin, and Mao would say, right? Do you realize that if you think that way, then you're actually arguing for the existence of hell? Intrinsically, we fully realize that some people deserve God's judgment and wrath. We fully realize that some people deserve it. The question is, and the problem is, we don't all agree on who should be judged. Most of us like agree that Hitler and Stalin and Mao should be judged for their actions, but beyond that, our judgment is arbitrary. Do you realize that? It's arbitrary. We have this sense of fairness. But, beloved, that sense of fairness demands something. You know what it demands? Perfect righteousness. It demands a perfect standard. We will be judged by a perfectly holy standard because anything less also begs the question of what? Fairness. Right? 
If that line is arbitrary, then who should, who's in and who's out? Who's in and who's out? If that line is, is arbitrary. We might agree that some, some are monsters and should be in hell, but not us. Not us. Beloved, believe me. God will be perfectly fair. He will judge you by His perfect standard. That's what makes Christ so glorious to us. Because He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly holy. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. And He stood in our place at the cross. He stood and He received the wrath of the Father in our place if we only believed he believed he paid for our sins at the cross and if we are if we find ourselves in christ all that god considers is his perfect righteousness given or imputed to us that's what ephesians 1 7 says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace Beloved, I believe this is the mystery of Christ that Paul was willing to die for. By the way, for those who say that this life is all that we get, I tell you that God has set eternity in your hearts. That's, a, that's Ecclesiastes 3.11. You, you will, you do believe there's an eternity. You do understand that there's something more than what we have here today. We intrinsically realize that there's more to life than what we can sense with our five senses. As, Christ, as Christians, then, we are called to live as if both life and death and life after death matter. Did you get that? As Christians, let me say it again, we are called to live as if life and death and life after death matter. Our life, the life that we live before Christ matters. We live it to Christ to the glory of Christ. To me, to live is Christ. But my death and how I die matters too. How I face death matters. Because it's a model for, for what we hope for in the future. And obviously life after death matters because we're going to live there for eternity. This, this life is this and eternity is everything else, right? Listen to Paul's heart on this matter. The Apostle Paul, he says, for me to live, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. You know what he's saying? God has given me work. God has given me work to do. He's given me, he's given me uh, things to do as I live here. And he goes on, he says, and I don't know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart with Christ and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. That's what he's saying to the church at Philippi. And he's saying much the same thing to the church at Ephesus. In other words, Paul struggled back and forth with living this life to its fullest for our Lord or departing so that he could be with our Lord. Beloved, this is the Christian ideal of life and death. It's how we should live our lives and how we should face our death i want you to notice that that paul views death as merely a gateway to another or to a, a greater existence it's natural to fear how we may die i'm certain that many of us do but as christians we should not fear death itself we shouldn't fear die we yeah we're going to fear maybe how we die but we shouldn't fear death itself and the ultimate question i asked last week is what are you willing to die for? That's the question. What are you willing to die for? Our understanding of death should allow us to live by taking up our cross and following Christ in His, in his suffering and death. Christ told His disciples that He would build His church. He also told them that He would suffer and die for the church, that He would purchase the church with His own blood. And he called his followers to be willing to suffer as well. Now, you may not suffer like the apostles did. You may not suffer unto death. 
But we do know, according to 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you desire, if you set your heart to live godly in this present age, you will be persecuted. You will. I can. I remember one time when I was a younger Christian, I, I, I struggled because I didn't feel like I was being persecuted. I felt, I felt like, I mean, I felt like my life was too easy. And then that changed. Enough said. It changed. This brings us to our current study in Ephesians. We've been working through this letter to the Ephesians from Paul and have come to an intensely personal section for Paul and for the church. As he penned this letter, Paul was imprisoned and and the church at large had already faced a great amount of persecution. You see, I believe, based on what Paul is saying and based on the history that we see in the book of Acts, I believe that this church was in danger of giving up. I believe that they saw the cost that they were paying in terms of suffering and in terms of their lives might be too great. But in this passage that we're about to look at, Paul wanted the Ephesian church to know that he could be trusted and that all Christians must press forward for the sake of the mystery of Christ of which Paul had been made a steward. Paul pleaded with them and that God gave him that, this stewardship first for the church's interest. Now, let me warn you, we're only going to get to the second point today. So you can relax. I'm not going to keep you here till much longer than normal. Now, you might be asking yourself, you might be asking, so why is it so important to realize that Paul can be trusted? Why, why, am, I, why am I hitting on this so hard? Quite frankly, quite frankly, I think it would be fair to say that Paul's ministry has been attacked from the very beginning. As a new believer, I can personally remember struggling with Paul. I remember struggling with I mean, I mean, he was this other guy who didn't seem to fit with the rest of Christ's apostles. You know, I struggled with Matthias as well, but he didn't write over half the books of the New Testament, right? So, I mean, his ministry, at least from our point of view, his ministry wasn't as, as large as Paul's. So I struggled with, with, with Paul. Now, I'm not the only one, by the way. Just listen to these two quotes regarding the, mis- the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is Thomas Jefferson. Here's what he said. He says this, Of this band of dupes and impostors, Paul was the greatest and the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus, end quote. That's Thomas Jefferson. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. Here's what H.G. Wells says. He says this, But it is equally a fact in history that St. Paul and his successors added to or completed or imposed upon or substituted another doctrine for, as you may prefer to think, the plain and profoundly revolutionary teachings of Jesus, end quote. That's H.G. Wells, author. So he's saying that, look, Paul and his successors added to, imposed upon, or substituted another doctrine for what Christ had taught. That's the attack. Beloved, this would make for a great movie or a great book if you like to read. Last week we found that Paul has been given, has, has given the, I'm sorry, has given the church incredible truth regarding the mystery of Christ. Specifically, he has taught them that Jew and Gentile have been brought together in Christ. We have been saved by grace through faith and placed into the body of Christ. Mysteriously, we have been built into a holy temple and made to be the dwelling of God the Spirit. Paul, then, has given us the key to unlock the mystery of the church. Last week, we also showed that Paul's account of these great truths can be trusted. We can trust Paul because Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. What Paul saw completely changed his direction in life. The great antagonist of the church became the protagonist. The great persecutor of the church became the persecuted. Ultimately, we can trust Paul because he was persecuted and he suffered for the great truths that he taught. And we can trust him because his teaching was approved by the other apostles as well as by James. 
We'll see more of this today. Now, Paul starts this chapter by saying that he is a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. He has been imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel, and he understood that he had been imprisoned by Christ for Christ's own purposes. Make sure you get that. He wasn't, uh, obviously, practically speaking, he was imprisoned by the Romans, but he was imprisoned by Christ for Christ's purposes, and that was for the sake of the Gentiles. In other words, Paul was rightly teaching that the Gentiles could be saved apart from the works of the Mosaic ceremonial law, apart from the works of law, but there were many who took exception to this teaching. They were upset because they couldn't believe that the law had, the ceremonial law, that is, had been abolished. They couldn't grasp that we can know God apart from the law. You see, the requirements of the law had been satisfied by Christ at the cross. They couldn't grasp that God is the God of the Gentiles as well as the God of the Jews. You see, they couldn't, all, they, they couldn't understand that no man, no man, can be justified by the works of the law. So they wanted Paul to be punished. They wanted him to be punished for teaching these things. Now back to the text, what is happening here is Paul is about to pray for the Ephesians. He's going he's he's to pray, he's about to pray that they will understand all that he's teaching or has taught them. But before he breaks into prayer, he interjects a parenthetical thought which runs from verse 2 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 13. Now, I think the best way to understand these verses is to recognize that Paul is pleading with the Ephesian church not to give up. Not to give up. Notice, he says in verse 13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He's saying, look, I'm imprisoned. I'm in chains, but these chains are a testimony of what Christ is doing through me and doing for you. Now, Paul, we learned last week, was arrested in Jerusalem five years prior to writing this letter. In Acts 20, he passed through and he had visited the Ephesian elders, and there were many tears because they knew they wouldn't see him again. Because And Paul himself had some idea of what he, might, what he would face in Jerusalem. He didn't know exactly, but he knew this. He knew that Christ is faithful. And he knew that, that the church, he knew the church needed to know that as well. He says so, and te- look at your text. He says this, so he says this, If indeed, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, Basically what he's saying, it's hard to see in the, the English text, what he's saying is this word that he says that's, that's translated if indeed, he's saying, look, this is a wake-up call to you. Christ, the, Christ's plan is going forward. Christ is building his church. It's, it's, a, it's really a slap in the face. It's, in effect, he's saying, wake up. Wake up. Look alive. Somebody knows that. That, that reference God is still on his throne he has a perfect plan he says if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given given to me for you in effect he's saying you don't need to worry about me you don't need to worry about the church you you need to worry you need to understand that is that God has a perfect plan my imprisonment these chains are part of that plan i have been given a stewardship of god's grace in other words paul was given or god gave paul the amazing job of carrying the the news of god's grace to the gentiles he had been given this awesome responsibility of taking the gospel to the nations and this was an initial fulfillment of this this imprisonment what paul had done and the reason he was in prison was an initial fulfillment of christ's command to go and make disciples of all the nations according to matthew 28 19 and 20 and according and with paul this process started in the church at antioch with jews and gentiles and it continued as he embarked upon three missionary journeys now some believe that he went on a fourth journey which is not recorded in scripture we do know that from romans 15 that he desired to go to spain 
which would have been potentially his fourth journey. See, these journeys that Paul went on fulfilled Christ's commands in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1 to take the gospel to the Gentile nations. Paul's suffering on behalf of the, of the Gentiles, his imprisonment, is all part of God's greater purpose for the church to take the good news of Christ and make disciples of the nations. In other words, Paul is saying, don't you dare give up. Don't you dare give up. This isn't over yet. We're just getting started. All of this, my imprisonment is for the greater good of the gospel. Beloved, beloved, the church was indeed just getting started. And by the way, it's still going. Still going. Things may look bleak at times, but we're still called to make disciples of all the nations. What do you think, I have a question of, what do you think Paul would say to our church here today? I think that he would say to Grace Bible Church, get up. There's still much work to be done. Preach the gospel. Do you realize? I was having a conversation with someone this past couple of days. Do you realize that we have 50,000 people in this town who are replaced roughly every four years? Do you realize that? Many of these people will be moved to other areas of the world within the next few years, and the process keeps repeating itself over and over and over. 50,000 people come into this town. Four years later, 50,000 new people come in. Over and over. And they go out to the world. Beloved, we're not a college ministry, but we are blind if we don't see the opportunity for the spread of the gospel to all corners of the earth through this church through this little church here, through Grace Bible Church. We are blind if we don't see that. I would join Paul in saying, don't give up. Get up. There are souls to be saved. Listen to John Wesley. He says this, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they're clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell, and set up the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on earth, end quote. Did you get that? Every one of you are called to preach the gospel. Every one of you are called to take the gospel to the nations. And we had that incredible opportunity right here in Gainesville. Let's look at the second reason Paul could be trusted and that the church should press forward. Paul pleaded that God had given him this stewardship, the stewardship of grace for the church's insight. Look at the text. It says that in verse 3. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. We've been setting this up, beloved, for the last couple of weeks. This word refers to the means by which the mystery was made known or revealed to Paul. It came to him by revelation directly from God. You see, he didn't conjure up this information. This wasn't a, a cleverly devised tale. Jesus gave, directly gave Paul the gospel. Listen to, listen, to, listen to the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.16. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, now Peter is referring to what? Matthew 17, which we saw last week. Matthew 17 is the transfiguration. And what we see is, is that Peter is saying, look, we saw the glory of God. He goes on to say that we have the Word made more sure, that the Word is superior because the words that they wrote uh, are from God as well. Now, I pointed out last week that Paul had his own experience of seeing the glorified Christ on the road to Damascus. If you want to turn to Galatians 1. Look at verse 11. My Bible says, this is Paul defending his ministry. He says this in verse 11. 
For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. So it didn't come from man. It's, it's not according to man. Man didn't give this gospel to Paul. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what's happening here is Paul is telling the Galatians that the gospel he received, he didn't receive from the other apostles. He didn't receive it from any other man. He received it directly from God, from Christ. More specifically, he received it as, as a revelation. He was received directly by him. Now look at verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now, we saw this last week. We talked about it. Paul had it all. He was, he was advancing beyond others around him. He had no earthly reason to deviate from the path that he's on, yet he did. Just listen. Listen to verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Stop right there. So basically what he's saying is, is from the very beginning. Oh, let me use his own words. From the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that is, He was set apart to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So all that time that He spent learning about the Old Testament through the, the great teachers of, of, uh, of Judaism, guess what? God was using it to set him up to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But he goes on, I did not, verse 16 at the end, I did not immediately consult flesh and blood. So he didn't, go to, he didn't immediately go to anyone else. Nor did I go, that is the apostles is what he's ultimately speaking of, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now, based on verse 12, I believe that during those three years, Paul received insight and instruction from Jesus. So that three-year interval that, that, that he's there, he's learning from Christ. Now, what makes that so amazing is, is you have the 12 apostles, that had, had been with Christ for three, for three years, right? Three years of ministry, 12 apostles, been with Him for three years. Christ had revealed all the truth to them. Then you have Paul. Now, by the way, those 12 apostles are what? They're just normal, everyday people. Fishermen, there's a tax collector right there. I mean, there's, they're just normal, everyday people. What's Paul? Paul is in the middle of Jerusalem, high up. He's in a completely different territory than these the other 12 apostles right so you have christ revealing to the 12 and then you have christ revealing to paul right teaching paul paul spent time with christ three years the same as the apostles right so paul what paul wanted the galatians to understand is that he didn't come up with these things on his own and he didn't hear them from man but then he says this and Verse 18, then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stay with him, stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So what I'm saying is then, and I said this earlier, that Paul's teaching then was verified, even though it's a different, a different vein, Paul's teaching, Paul's gospel was verified by the other apostles. He goes on to say, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. This is Galatians 2.1. I'm sorry if I jumped ahead. And it was also because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So what happened is, is he was reporting to the Galatians, that he, had, that he and the other apostles had compared notes. They sat down and they compared Gospels. And it was found that there's absolutely no difference between what Paul had been teaching for 11 years in Antioch 
and what the apostles had been teaching in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. They were exactly the same. And that makes sense, right? There was, never, there was never a problem, and there wasn't one currently between Paul's message and the teaching of the Jerusalem church, and that makes sense because they'd both been given revelation by one person, the Lord Jesus. So the, the revelation given to Paul matched the revelation given to Peter and the other apostles. So go back to Ephesians 3, verse 3. says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So Paul, I believe what Paul is referring to, the revelation that he's referring to, the mystery that he's referring to, is what he had just wrote in the letter. He had just wrote what he wrote in brief, chapters 1 and 2. He had just told them, he had just told them the mystery of Christ, the mystery of how we're saved in Christ, but more than that, the mystery of how Jew and Gentile are one in Christ, that we are a new creation in Christ, that we as a, are being built up according to, to chapter 2, verse 20, that we are, being, uh, we are being built up into a holy temple in the Lord, and, in, and we are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul had been given that revelation. And that is the gospel that he'd been preaching. Now, we'll have to pick up on verse 4 next time. As I announced earlier, we're now going to enter a time of communion, a time of observing the Lord's Supper. Paul had written earlier in chapter 1 that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. But he goes on to say in verse chapter 1, verse 7, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Beloved, the point is, is that salvation is all of Christ. Salvation is all of what Christ has done. It's all of grace. In chapter 2, verse 8, we quote it often, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. You've been saved by, if you're here today and you are in Christ, you've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Let me give you a few reminders prior to partaking in the Lord's table. This is a solemn time of remembrance. I want you to take this opportunity to remember our Lord's death on the cross. Remembrance is central to the Lord's table. And our Lord says in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, He says twice, do this in remembrance of me. Secondly, it's a time of reflection. Take this time to reflect upon your walk with Christ. In Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Paul exhorted the Ephesians, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. But he goes on to say, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Question is, your aim, question is, is it your aim to be pleasing to our Lord? Are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling for which you've been called? Third, this is a time of confession and repentance. You could say revealing and repentance if you stay with the R's. And use this time to confess your sins to the Lord. It's not as though God doesn't know about your sin. Believe me, He does. 
But confession means that we say the same thing about our sin that God does. It means that we agree with God about our sin. By the way, He hates it, right? It's our tendency to hide our sin. It's our tendency to hide it, put it under a, put it under a hat, if you will, as the Adam and Eve hid in the bushes, right? But God wants us, wants us to confess our sin. He wants us to reveal our sin to Him. He wants us to agree with Him about our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're to confess and repent. Repent means to turn, to turn from our sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this is a time of confession and repentance. It's also a time of proclamation, or staying with the R is a time of report. Paul writes that when we partake of the Lord's table, we proclaim or we report the Lord's death until He comes. It's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. So this time of communion is is a time of, of proclamation. Proclamation of what Christ has done for us. I recite this often, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made, him, he made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It's a, it, we're proclaiming what Christ has done by imputing his righteousness to us and taking upon himself the sin that and the the wrath for sin that we deserve I just had a conversation with someone this morning about this is a time of remembrance it's also the understanding is is that the holy spirit is present here there's a, there's a presence of, of the Lord here with us. Take your time to, take this time to think through, to reflect upon these things. And I beg you not to partake in an unworthy manner, but to confess our Lord is good. He will, he will forgive. He will cleanse you if you confess your sins. I'm going to, Take a few minutes here. Just take some time to think through these things. Think about what the Lord has done. Think about what He accomplished. If He had not gone to the cross, you would still be in your sin.